Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Welcome to Close Readings. This is the penultimate episode in a series of LRB podcasts about modern poets who wrote in English, drawing on the rich archive of essays and reviews and all sorts of other things to have appeared over the years in the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach English literature at Oxford, and I'm talking today, as usual, to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. In our next episode, we'll be taking uh, the opportunity to commemorate uh, the anniversary of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, published first in December 1922. But today... We are speaking about some later poets, perhaps poets influenced in some way by Eliot, and certainly by the modernist revolution of which he was a leader. And unusually, we're not going to be talking about just one poet, but about two, the great American poets Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery. So perhaps, Mark, the first thing to talk about would be why two? Why do these two hang together? I think it's very interesting to put them together, as it is Wordsworth and Coleridge, or Eliot and Pound, indeed, in that they related to each other in an extremely influential way, that they um, were close friends, um, they shared similar tastes, they actually had very similar voices as well. There's a a famous occasion when um, John Ashbury's mother asked a question when Frank was staying, and Frank replied, and she said, that's okay, John. (laughs) So that their voices were, were had a similar nasal New York sound, that they were, in some ways, they were not exactly twins, but they were often uh, thought of as like, like siblings or brothers and that they were compared to the brothers in East of Eden. And Frank O'Hara was the bad one and John was the good one, was the kind of legend in the New York school. The New York school, we should say, of which they were the kind of leading lights was a group of poets. It's normally presented as four poets, John Ashbery, Frank O'Hara, James Schuyler and Kenneth Coke, who were extremely close together and were in reaction, actually, against the dictates of such as T.S. Eliot, that they were looking to create a poetry that was anti-academic, that had what Kenneth Coke calls fresh air in it. And they looked to French surrealist poetry in particular as offering a way out of the well-made poem, the well-wrought urn that was privileged by academic critics, particularly the new critics, such as Cleance Brooks and so on, that they were in revolt against that. And I think it's worth pointing out also in terms of their connection, that both uh, O'Hara and Ashbury were gay at a time when it wasn't easy to be gay. That in the 50s in particular, there were uh, a lot of legislation 
and Ashbury, in fact, got out of going to the Korean War by coming out to the uh, drafting board, uh, and he was classed as not fit for service. And James Schuyler, as well, was kicked out of the navy. He'd gone, he'd gone AWOL, <laughs> but he, he, when he returned, he revealed he was gay, and he was, uh, he was discharged with disgrace. I think is, was the term. So they had that in common that they were poets who were looking to create a poetry rather as Auden and Spender (laughs) had done in the 30s that was somehow attentive to their difference from the mainstream uh, population. So we should fill in the backstory a little bit. Frank O'Hara was born in 1926. He grows up in Massachusetts. He's actually a very talented musician, isn't he? Studies the piano at the conservatory in Boston. Uh, he does serve in the war mm-hmm. for a year in the Navy and then comes back to study music at Harvard. So these people are in reaction against Eliot, as you say, but they have odd kind of overlaps with, with uh, uh, Eliot too, don't they? Because it was at Harvard that um, he meets Ashbury. Is that right? Yes. Uh, they were extremely well educated and very sophisticated. Ashbury was, from quite a young age, interested in classical music, in surrealist art. Um, he wanted to be a painter, in fact, in his teens. So they both had these kind of faux faux professions, like Ashbury wanted to be a painter, O'Hara a musician, before they discovered poetry in their late teens. Mm. And they suddenly realised that poetry was to be their medium. But they were re- all their poetry is really open and um, influenced by other arts. They had a vision of poetry as somehow a cosmopolitan, interactive activity. It wasn't something that you wrote in an ivory tower on your own in relation to other earlier poets. It was something that was responding all the time to other art movements. Uh, And that's why New York becomes so central to their work. New York being, particularly in the 50s, somewhere where all kinds of different art forms, abstract expressionism, dance, opera, jazz, all these things are going on. And their notion of the poetry is it should have that kind of openness to the culture at large. So Ashbury um, gets to New York because he does a, a master's degree at Columbia. Is that right? And then o- O'Hara moves to New York, having finished his graduate studies at Michigan. And when he arrives in New York, he gets completely immersed in that art world that you're talking about, partly because he be- begins work at the Museum of Modern Art yes, just off uh, Fifth Avenue. Initially on the front desk, just you know, allowing people in. But he does end up as an assistant curator and in charge of the international exhibition. So he does play a, a fairly major role in the, the export of painters such as Jackson Pollock, whom, with whom he was somewhat obsessed. He wrote a monograph on Pollock. But uh, the, the, the travelling exhibition, which features works by such as kind of Willem de Kooning and uh, Pollock and other abstract, uh, um, uh, Rothko and so on, was hugely influential in creating the, the notion of New York as the centre of the art world. And that's how they get called the New York School of Poets. There was this New York School of Painters, which had been to turn out to be a really uh, astute marketing tool for creating the sense of New York as the centre of the artistic universe, taking over from Paris. And one of someone who owned, owned a gallery called the Tibor Denage Gallery, um, John Bernard Myers, thought, well, let me try this with the poets. So he coined the notion the New York School of Poets. And he published various chapbooks in which their work was illustrated by painter friends of theirs, such as uh, Jane Freilicker, Larry Rivers. So um, let's have a poem, shall we? What about that lovely O'Hara poem called Why I Am Not a Painter, which is uh, rather paradoxically 
entitled, isn't it? Because one of the points of the poem, I suppose, is there's a kind of kinship between what he's doing and what his painter friend is doing. Uh, exactly. I mean, as many O'Hara poems, it, it name drops. A lot, a lot of O'Hara's poems refer to his friends. And it's, it's worth thinking of his poems almost as circulating among a coterie of like-minded and that of painters, dancers, uh, musicians and so on. And uh, this idea of this ideal artistic utopian community, which is something you could see is also carried out in Andy Warhol's factory, also uh, from from a decade afterwards. Uh, this was kind of the vision. And this poem celebrates his difference from Mike Goldberg, but also his similarity. Why I am not a painter. I am not a painter. I am a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I am not. Well, for instance, Mike Goldberg is starting a painting. I drop in. Sit down and have a drink, he says. I drink. We drink. I look up. You have sardines in it. Yes, it needed something there. Oh. I go and the days go by and I drop in again. The painting is going on and I go and the days go by. I drop in. The painting is finished. Where's sardines? All that's left is just letters. It was too much, Mike says. But me? One day I'm thinking of a colour. Orange. I write a line about orange. Pretty soon it is a whole page of words, not lines. Then another page. There should be so much more. Not of orange, of words, of how terrible orange is. And life. Days go by. It is even in prose. I am a real poet. My poem is finished and I haven't mentioned orange yet. It's twelve poems. I call it Oranges. And one day in the gallery I see Mike's painting called Sardines. Now, there's a lovely contribution to the um, London Review of Books by the New Zealand poet C.K. Stead, where he talks about that voice that O'Hara creates very nicely, I think. And he, at one point, he talks about its tone of camp inconsequence. Um, and you can see what he means. But at the same time, there's quite a lot of consequence about that poem, isn't there? That was one of O'Hara's brilliant kind of innovations, the way to be insouciant and somehow uh, chatty and colloquial and gossipy. And yet, at the same time, the poem is really dealing with, you know, th th that central ut pictura poesis uh, kind of conundrum of the difference between painting and poetry. And it does, but it does so in its oblique, chatty, very charismatic way. I think one of the, the real central differences between O'Hara and Ashbury is, is the presentation of the O'Hara persona, which is this person around about town in New York, who you would like to know. The poems really only work if you fall in love with O'Hara. And he compared, you know, writing poetry as trying to get somebody to want to go to bed with you. <laughs> uh, that was the idea of poetry. So there is a kind of seductive, glamorous, charming, raffishness about his persona. And I think also a confidence which is something that the poems radiate. Uh, I mean, he actually grew up Catholic and there was a really quite sort of damaging break with his family of origin, which had to happen for him to transform himself into this doyen of the New York art world. So there are ways in which the, the O'Hara persona is also a defiant uh, rejection of suburban America, of Catholic repression, of all the things that would inhibit you from having the most fun you can have. He says in a, a very, seems to me a very astute comment in his one of his art art chronicles, in a capitalist country, fun is everything. And that goes to the heart of O'Hara. There's a kind of hedonism about it, which is is also, you could see, is a very American 
in a very American tradition, you could trace back to Wallace Stevens or Walt Whitman, that you have to throw off the Puritan mantle of the American tradition to achieve a kind of cosmopolitan and exciting, hedonistic, unashamed, guilt-free enjoyment celebration of life. And he does talk about that process, doesn't he, as, as well as talking about the end result of it, the, the jubilance and the exuberance. There's a lovely early poem, isn't there, called Autobiographia Literaria, where he contrasts his childhood, which is lonely and sad and full of hatred and and so on. And then the last little verse reads, And here I am, the centre of all beauty, writing these poems. Imagine! So do you think he's inherited the exclamation mark, or the shriek point there from, from Whitman and reworking it to his own purposes, do you think? Yes, also from French surrealism as well. But a- absolutely, and it, it's, it, it really it gets the whole of that Coleridge... <laughs> those Coleridge volumes into a mere 12 short lines. Um, and, and it is the, that basic romantic idea, isn't it? That you are the most important person. It, it's happening to you. Uh, actually, Kenneth Coke at one point says, what I learnt from O'Hara, the most interesting th- thought happening in someone else's head was less important than what was going on in my head. So I think that Whitmanian inheritance of the song of myself, and O'Hara did in his charming spoof manifesto, said that only Whitman Crane... Hart Crane and William Carlos Williams were better than the movies. That idea of the Whitmanian inheritance about American individuality uh, is a really interesting one to trace through in both Ashbury and O'Hara, that while they look iconoclastic and as if they are brokering um, wholly new artistic ground, they can also be traced back to the dominant lineaments of 19th century American poetry, in Ashbury's case, of Emily Dickinson as well, whom we talked about in an earlier episode. That sense of epistemological uncertainty in which Dickinson's poems leave us is very much where Ashbury's poems often plunge readers into a similar kind of quandary. Now, you mentioned the movies there, and O'Hara's got several poems, hasn't he, which express his delight in film and and you know we're not we're not talking high art house movies here are we what he actually loves is um the hollywood motion picture industry as he says in in a wonderful poem called to the film industry in crisis where he lists all the things that do not attract him lean quartiles and swarthy periodicals experimental theater <laughs> in which emotive fruition is wedded poetic insight perpetually not grand opera but you motion picture industry it's you i love um what is it do you think about I suppose to our eyes, maybe even quite trashy Hollywood films that grabbed him so completely. Well, they watched movies all the time. They particularly like they liked bad movies. They would all gather in John Button's house and watch them on TV as well as going to them. And I think what they enjoyed were the conventions, seeing through the conventions and enjoying, relishing in a kind of camp way. Um, Susan Sontag's notes on camp are quite a good analogy to some of the ways in which their taste operates. So that they, they are very happy to enjoy B-movies in a way that Elliot and Pound weren't I- interested in, in B-movies. They were interested in music hall, though, and, and so on. But the art form which undermined this notion of the, of the poet as some kind of an authentic repository of meaning were the movies, which were these collaborative explorations and were driven, again, by capitalism, that they weren't uh, separated out from the mainstream culture at all, that they were the mainstream culture. And yes, it, it ends, it is a divine precedent you perpetuate, roll on reels of celluloid as the great earth 
rolls on. And I think in, in this poem, it's a good example of O'Hara's wit, isn't it? He's a very, very witty poet and a performative poet. And he was the life and soul of parties when he went to parties, except when he got drunk and could turn a bit waspish uh, in the early hours. But he was always the centre of things, like Autobiographia Literaria says, you know, look at me, the centre of all beauty. Similarly, his social performance was one which was captivating for all those involved. And people from around America who read his poems in the various kind of magazines. And, and, and he wasn't a, a poet who was a professional poet in any way at all. He, they, the one poet they really disliked was Robert Lowell. That one of the things that brings together the, the New York poets was their dislike of the high seriousness mm. of early Lowell. And I think it's August Kleinzahler in one of the pieces reviewing Karen Rothman's biography of uh, John Ashbery quotes a parody of Lowell, which Ashbery comes up with, which is quite funny. Uh, so that thumping seriousness was the opposite of what they wanted. The poetry should be light on its feet and, and also uh, it should be uh, amusing and capture moments in their kind of fleetingness and not make too much of them. And also it should be able to represent homosexuality, which was taboo. There's a lovely poem called At the Old Place, in which the old place was a bar, a gay bar, and they end up going to this gay bar and down the dark stairs drifts the steaming cha-cha-cha. Through the urine and smoke we charge the floor. Wrapped in Ash's arms I glide. It's heaven. Button Lindy with me. It's heaven. Joe's two steps too are incredible. And then a fast rumba with Alvin, like skipping on toothpicks and the interminable intermissions. Uh, it captures beautifully just the experience of going to a bar and dancing uh, with a kind not making anything of it, um, but... Uh, quite open. And he has a poem called Homosexuality uh, as well, which wasn't published in his lifetime. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, you could go on trial for being gay in the 50s. So it, it, it was, wasn't... Uh, one of the reasons Ashbury said he went, wanted to go to France was to escape from the homophobic atmosphere of 50s America. Well, now you've anticipated my next question there, because while um, O'Hara is creating this new modern but happily modern literature of New York and urban space and kind of chance encounters you wander out in your lunchtime and all those sorts of things. Um, Ashbury actually is nowhere near New York. He's in France and then settles in Paris for the best part of a decade. So. That's right. He, after leaving Harvard, in, uh, uh, he spends five years in New York uh, and he's working working for university, Oxford University Press, in fact, but just doing handout, handouts, not an interesting job. And then he gets this uh, Fulbright to go to America. And the same year... To go to Paris. Go to Paris, yeah. sorry. Uh, the same year, uh, Some Trees is chosen by W.H. Auden as the Yale Younger Poets volume for, for that year, and it comes out in 1956. And the competition for that was a volume by O'Hara. And in fact, Auden had been sent various manuscripts. O'Hara's and Ashbury's had been weeded out by the first readers, but they had a mutual friend, Chester Coleman, and Chester sent Ashbury's and O'Hara's to Auden on Ischia, and he read them and decided to give it to Ashbury. So this is the book, Some Trees, that inaugurates Ashbury's career. O'Hara despite having been pipped to the post, very nobly says of it, it's the most beautiful first book to appear in America since Harmonium, which is the first book of poems by Wallace Stevens. So a pretty high praise. High praise. He knew it was coming from his chum, though. And um, in fact, Ashbury felt very much that his 
poetry wasn't embraced with open arms, particularly up until the 70s, that he was neglected and overlooked. And although Some Trees was awarded this this prize, it didn't inaugurate a career in any kind of spectacular way, in the ways as happened for Adrian Rich, for instance, um, that he was always seen as, as he felt himself to be marginalised in various ways. So Alden, as the general editor of this Yale Younger Poet series, had to write a preface for each volume. And the preface he writes about Ashbury is an interesting one. And I don't know if it's exactly right about Ashbury, but it certainly says something very interesting about Auden. And he says one of the things he likes in Ashbury's poetry is that it, it keeps a kind of old-fashioned sense of magic alive in a, in, a, in a rational, modern world. It keeps alive a sense of the numinousness and the mystery and the oddity of, the, of objects in the world that you come across. And he, and he does this, says Auden, and this is quite sharp, it seems to me, by strange juxtapositions of imagery and singular association of ideas. This is the way you create a kind of atmosphere of magic in a modern world, which, of course, actually doesn't believe in magic really anymore. But you can momentarily or temporarily believe in magic just for the space of a, of a poem. Um, and then Auden goes on from that to, to say that it's not surprising that so many modern poems, and especially Ashbury's, are concerned with the whole nature of the creative process. That becomes one of their main themes, um, asking themselves, is it now possible to write poetry? Do you see that sort of self-consciousness about the poetic vocation in some trees? I think absolutely I do. And the self-consciousness is married or fused to that notion of the romantic, which I think is what Auden is talking about, the idea of... And Ashbury always thought of himself as a romantic poet, a poet in the romantic tradition. So the idea of the numinous or magical or the idea of grace in some ways is present in, in Ashbury's poems and it's what sort of drives them. But moments of grace don't happen all the time every day. So Ashbury's uh, one way in which this chaotic world in which we live in in the 20th century can be represented with sort of justice is to present lots of banal and flat and goofy and weird things happening as well as moments of grace and understanding some trees the poem itself is actually quite in some ways a quite a straightforward poem celebrating what is probably an erotic romance is underlying this but it also does justice to the chance the sense of contingency the sense of amazing fortune in this moment but it's one which is uh, momentary and which also has to defend itself against the outside world uh, has to protect itself which can be seen as in some ways a reaction to a kind of implicit homophobia in the culture that uh, and Ashbury himself his his mother had come to know of his homosexuality and that it didn't make life easy necessarily on the farm. And the point August Kleinzahler makes in his piece is the extent to which Ashbury travelled this enormous distance from being a, a country boy growing up on a fruit farm uh, in northern New York State uh, to being this most sophisticated, cosmopolitan, uh, gracious, charming, witty, doyen of, of the kind of artistic world, au fait with, with almost every kind of art form there was, from the lowest sitcom. He used to love British sitcoms. I, used to, I should say now, if, if our listeners don't know, I got very friendly with John. I wrote my PhD thesis on him, uh, which I sent him, and he, he didn't open it except for chuckling at a few quotes on the first page but uh, he, we did get very close he, he was and he was very very charming and witty and friendly but I remember walking around Paris one time and talking you know not about the surrealists but talking about the vicar of Dibley and uh, Lenny Henry's chef and um, 
Faulty Towers and other British sitcoms, which meant did, a lot. Did to you him. tell me he liked Are You Are, we, Are You Being Served? He adored Are You Being Served, and I his letters. He wrote a lot of letters to me as well, in which I was routinely addressed as Miss Slocum and um, or uh, various or, or Young Mister Grace and and so on. It was part of a really delightful humour that he had. So going back to some trees, just to capture this sense of this is Ashbury's farewell to traditional poetry. It rhymes, but it is also concerned with chance. These are amazing, each joining a neighbour as though speech were a still performance, arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it. You and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are, that their merely being there means something that soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad not to have invented such comeliness, we are surrounded, a silence already filled with noises, a canvas on which emerges a chorus of smiles, a winter morning. Placed in a puzzling light and moving, our days put on such reticence, these accents seem their own defence. It is a lovely poem, but it also... Um if we look forward to the voices that Ashbury begins to develop in his next volume uh, and thereafter, it, it is quite an old-fashioned poem, isn't it? There are bits of this poem that would not be entirely out of place in a Philip Larkin poem. You and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, lovely, rather regretful, almost nostalgic um, kind of sense of being that you sometimes get evoked, don't you, in a, in a Larkin poem or something like that. I'm not saying there's any question of influence. I'm just th- thinking about the ways it taps back into those earlier sorts of traditions that Ashbury hasn't yet sort of pushed behind him. Yes, and he he's, in a quite telling comment, I think, he said of Larkin's poems that they, Larkin wrote poems which had bottoms to them. <laughs> uh, and this is a poem with a bottom, which, which with an ending, though it's a very puzzling ending and it moves beyond its own conventions yeah. and embraces a world beyond those conventions. So that's why John called it his farewell to poetry, as you know it. And he then did look beyond those conventions. And that is one of the habits of the New York poets, that they never took at face value the conventions which were around them. They made use of them as mediums, but they didn't invest in them or believe in them or commit to them. So there was a kind of sophistication. It's a kind of irony that's beyond irony. Irony allows you to place something. Their irony is a destabilising irony that asks you, you call it a camp irony, that asks you to enjoy the reductiveness of conventions like those of a B-movie, but enjoy them because of their, their kind of naivety rather than, than as brilliant you know, um, explorations of life. So as you say, um, having your, your first volume chosen by Auden for this distinguished series uh, was a feather in his t- cap, but it didn't transform him into a famous name overnight. And his second volume, which is called The Tennis Court Oath, had an even more mixed reaction. Is, is that right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different, it's a whole step further into the Ashbury Manor, isn't it? Yes, the, the kind of dislocation of language that goes on in it, uh, he related to the fact that he was living in Paris and he, it uses cut-up techniques, which William Burroughs had been using at the same time. I actually love the cut-up poems, um, but there were certain poems in it, like They Dream Only of America, which are less dissociative and less cut-up, but the cut-up ones do exhibit a mastery of, of Rhythm. Um, So even though they don't make sense in the way one wants poetry to make sense, uh, they are hypnotic and compulsive in a certain way, which isn't true, I don't think, of Burroughs' cut-ups. And he knew that he had to take poetry apart, as he thought, before he could put it together 
again. That was his concept. Uh, but the tennis court oath, yes, it was seen as a fearful disaster by by critics or one of them, John Simon, he had mistaken his book for garbage. That's a line from it. And he quotes that as, you know, uh, <laughs> so the author claims. Well, he's right there. John Kerrigan and his piece in the uh, LRB calls them bafflingly exquisite. Um, there are not many poems that, that Kerrigan can't, you know, bash his way through, but these are bafflingly exquisite. And let me just read a few lines so that our listeners can get a sense of it. This is from the poem you mentioned, They Dream Only of America. And one of the reasons that it's so baffling, I suppose, is because it goes through the motions of um, telling us a narrative or a series of narrative events, but doesn't actually you know, fulfill on, 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 the, on the promise. The effect is brilliant, I think, um, but very disorientating, isn't it? We could drive hundreds of miles at night through dandelions. When his headache grew worse, we stopped at a wire-filling station. Now he cared only about signs. Was the cigar a sign? And what about the key? He went slowly into the bedroom. Well, they loved, he loved cutting up sort of pulp fiction and the long poem that concludes that volume Europe is a, is a cut-up of a very terrible novel called Beryl of the Biplanes by William Lequeur, which I've actually read as an Ashbury scholar. I should hope so. Uh, and uh, I know which bits he cut up to create this kind of disorienting effect. And... Um, Meanwhile, back in America, we should say. So John is in Paris from uh, 1955 to 1965 and, and has a relationship with someone called Pierre, Pierre Matry, who was a very charming Frenchman that I met actually in the 1990s when I was writing my book on Raymond Roussel. The reason Ashbury went to Paris was in theory to work, to write a PhD thesis on this eccentric French writer, Raymond Roussel. Who I meant to ask you about. Tell us about Roussel. Well, um, uh, he never got round to writing this book, so I thought I'd write it for him, and he was very pleased with that and contributed a foreword. Roussel was a very rich, eccentric, uh, a kind of inverse of Marcel Proust in some ways. But he 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 wrote his books in a peculiar way, which involved deforming language and creating stories out of the deformed words. Which, in some ways, he was a precursor of Olympian writers such as Georges Perec. Uh, but he died in 1933, and John was fascinated by him, and he. Uh, discovered a lot of new, some new material and a lot of biographical facts about him, but never wrote the thesis. But Roussel wasn't an influence in some ways on his notion that anything goes. And I think what they got from from wacky and eccentric writers, and John in particular was interested in writers who were non-canonical, who were kind of off the, uh, sort of off the wall in various ways, uh, who were sui generis, was a sort of permission to be off the wall himself and to explore his own kind of tendencies that way. Um, so they were looking to kind of liberate themselves, um, and Roussel was a kind of catalyst for that in some ways, along with Pierre Evadie uh, and all sorts of, of other writers that he read in that period. So let's, let's, leave, let's leave Ashbury in, in Paris reading these writers for a sec and switch back to New York, where O'Hara, 1964, publishes what must be his greatest volume, I guess, Lunch, lunch Poems which are very largely poems about what you do when you leave the office and wander around at lunchtime. Absolutely. And it was published by City Lights Poetry, which is sort of an interesting connection that he knew Allen Ginsberg. And one of his late poems is about getting Allen Ginsberg uh, an Alka-Seltzer because he's got a hangover. But the lunch poems were particularly um, uh, effective in the I do this, I do that poems, which that's 
O'Hara's own description of his potterings around New York. And often they would be hooked to some public event. I mean, one called um, A Step Away From Them is in some ways an elegy for Jackson Pollock and V.R. Lang, who was a friend of his who died, and John Latouche, the librettist. But the most famous one is The Day Lady Died, which is about Billie Holiday. And it's it's a gloriously immediate poem, but it's also, when you read it, an elegy. So as in the Biographia Literaria poem, he was able to take, uh, to seem just frank being frank. But at the end of the day, when you look at the poem, you realise it is in a genre and relates to a particular genre, but it's doing it in an extremely fresh and kind of invigorating and lively way. It is 12.20 in New York, a Friday, three days after Bastille Day. Yes, it is 1959 and I go get a shoe shine because I will get off the 4.19 in East Hampton at 7.15 and then go straight to dinner and I don't know the people who will feed me. I walk up the muggy street beginning to sun and have a hamburger and a malted and buy an ugly New World writing to see what the poets in Ghana are doing these days. I go on to the bank and miss Stillwagon, first name Linda I once heard, doesn't even look up my balance for once in her life and in the Golden Griffin I get a little Verlaine for Patsy with drawings by Bonnard, although I do think of Hesiod, Trans, Richmond, Lattimore or Brendan Behan's new play or Le Balcon or Les Nègres of Genet, but I don't, I stick with Verlaine after practically going to sleep with quandriness. And for Mike, I just stroll into the Park Lane liquor store and ask for a bottle of Strager and then I go back where I came from to Sixth Avenue and the tobacconist in the Ziegfeld Theatre and casually ask for a carton of Gauloise and a carton of Picayune and a New York Post with her face on it. And I'm sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John Doerr in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mal Waldron and everyone and I stopped breathing. Mal Waldron, we should say, was Billie Holiday's accompanist. And at the time, Billie Holiday was banned from singing, which is why she's whispering her song. She wasn't allowed to sing in New York because of her. She was on a charge for drugs. Um, so Beautifully it, exemplifies that poem, what Stephanie Burt says in, uh, in a London Review of Books piece about O'Hara being a people poet and also a poet of occasions, and, and the purely occasional. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant poetry of sort of complete contingency, isn't it, really? Absolutely. And, and you don't have to know that Patsy is Patsy Southgate, mm. who's married to Mike, who was Mike Goldberg, from the, from the Why I'm Not a Painter poem. He was an abstract painter. You do know that, realise that Mike must smoke a lot. He has a, a pack of gulwars and a pack of picayune. I like to sort of think of this poem as well as about consumerism and America, and also how many 50s poems represent a man shopping... <laughs> Uh, it's actually a rather a sort of daring thing to do. That it's a gay man shopping. That 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 is an interesting aspect of it. But it's immediacy. It is twelve twenty. It immediately makes you want to be there with him doing this, going for the weekend at the Hamptons and uh, hanging out with these charismatic artistic types, smoking, consuming, having great ideas, thinking. And then it ends up as this tribute to another. Another artist figure who, in some ways, you could say singing embodies a, a different kind of performative gracefulness, which O'Hara envies that the music that isn't sort of frozen on the page in the way in which a poem is, um, and that he, in some ways, um, relishes the performative aspect of Billie Holiday. In, in that sense, it's it's a way it's a poem like Wordsworth's The Solitary Reaper. Mm. He comes across a woman singing mm. uh, and celebrates uh, her difference from him. Uh, and her power to move him to this poem. 
So it's a kind of, again, a virtuous circle, as you often get in O'Hara, of one artwork inspiring another artwork, which then goes on to inspire another artwork. So it's this really uplifting vision of the coterie or the, vir- the virtuous circle of artists all sparking each other and keeping everything humming. Yes, and, and, the, and the sheer sort of moment-to-moment performativity of New York itself is the, is the great all-encompassing artwork for all of, all of it somehow. Yeah, um, and a place where you can buy stuff. You can buy a Verlaine, you can buy a Bonnard, you can go into these, um, these upmarket uh, bookstores and find these European treasures. It's also about being a connoisseur as well, which is one aspect of O'Hara's wit, that if you don't believe in anything, you know, God or anything, uh, and you live in a capitalist society, where you can exercise choice is in your artistic inclinations and liking Billie Holiday as well as liking Verlaine and so on is your identity that's I shop therefore I am (laughs) is one of the ways in which O'Hara is modern because that certainly isn't true of Elliot is it well no absolutely and the fact that the city is a a source of jubilation rather than a version of hell is also very striking isn't it there's a lovely earlier poem where O'Hara says one need never leave the confines of New York to get all the greenery one wishes. This is sort of fantastic sort of anti-pastoralism. I can't even enjoy a blade of grass unless I know there's a subway handy or a record store or some other sign that people do not totally regret life. That, I mean, that was that was taken as a kind of hymn to New York. And O'Hara's poetry is a hymn to New York. And it's actually there's a commemorative plaque down on um, uh, Lower Manhattan's Battery Park where those words are kind of written up um, as a sort of celebration of O'Hara's celebration of New York. So he stands with kind of Whitman as the great celebrator of urban living and of all the possibilities, erotic possibilities, but also artistic possibilities and just kind of contingency possibilities of the excitement of being on the streets is really vividly captured. I would say more vividly captured in O'Hara's work than that of any other 20th century poet. And then in July 1965, a terrible accident happens on Fire Island, which is... Sorry, a, 66, which is... What say. did I say? 66, I beg your pardon. Uh, Fire Island, which is a, a resort um, quite close to New York City. What is it exactly that happens? He gets run over by a buggy of, of some kind. Yes, it's uh, Fire Island is, is an island very popular with uh, Manhattan's gay population and, and O'Hara was out... Was out uh, on the island for the weekend, as many kind of um, gay New Yorkers would be. And he was at a disco. And on Fire Island, there are no cars. They just have these dune buggies, which... um, And their dune buggy broke down. O'Hara was a bit tipsy. And he was, it's fair to say, somewhat the worse for wear for alcohol by this stage in his life. But he wandered off to look at the sea. And another buggy swerved to avoid the stranded buggy. And it hit O'Hara... It hit him, and it only goes 30 miles an hour, but that was enough to give him these terrible internal da- damage. And 40 hours later, he he died in a hospital on Long Island. And, and it was seen by poets and painters. The whole of his set were absolutely devastated by this. John Ashbury had just returned to New York from Paris the year before, and it sort of broke up, in some ways, the closeness Um, And the sense that O'Hara was so central to so many people. So many people thought he was their best friend and were dependent upon him in various ways. It was a a, a terrible, terrible loss. But then, uh, and people thought, well, he wrote these charming, or people who didn't know 
weren't in his set, thought he wrote these slight, charming poems that came out in very slim volumes. 1971, the Donald Allen Collected Poems runs to over 500 pages, and it's a massive. So O'Hara was writing away. He could write any time, any place. He could be at a party talking to you and writing a poem at the same time. And that was part of his concept, as poetry is happening all the time, any time, any place. And um, there's a great poem called Sleeping on the Wing. James Schuyler said to him, you can't write a poem any time, can you? Frank, he said, yes, I can. Goes over to a typewriter and writes it there and then. And it's a beauty. Uh, and that that's the sort of, that notion of spontaneity, which is, again, is a very, we talked about Wordsworth and Coleridge as analogous. That idea of the spontaneous overflow of feelings is something that O'Hara very much believed in and that, why not? Um, so, again, it's a form of overcoming one's repressions or inhibitions. And in poetry is something which doesn't redeem life. It makes life more enjoyable. So as you mentioned there, Ashbury has now returned to New York and enters what um, I, th- I think you see, and I certainly agree with you, as his great middle period, I guess, the 60s and the 70s. Yes, from, from Rivers and Mountains, as uh, wonderful volume with a terrific long poem called The Skaters in it. It's a, it's a long Whitmanian poem, a kind of song of myself, which is uh, shows him really stretching his wings. So after the Um, compression of the tennis court oath he goes to the opposite extreme which is an expansiveness and his lines get extremely long and in fact in 1972 he publishes a book called three poems which are three prose poems so he's looking for an expansiveness which can somehow do justice to the I, i suppose again i put it in an american sense the sense of the diversity and the incredible overwhelming experience of difference going on in america that it needs a poem in the whitmanian tradition which has that capacity to cope with everything from the banal to the heroic uh, to the defeated. And he starts including language, cliches in his poetry in a way which allows his poetry to, to be read as somehow a snapshot of the ways in which Americans talk. So it, it decenters the notion of the authoritative eye and makes the poem seem an open canvas. And there is an analogy with abstract expressionist painting in that concept of the artwork as something which can accommodate whatever you dump in it. Yes. Um, so it doesn't need to be streamlined or meaningful yeah. all the way through or thematically coherent as the wasteland is. It can just be this diverse over... I'd say the wasteland is not necessarily coherent, but it can be read as coherent. But Ashbury's poems become very expansive and he really hits the jackpot in 1975 with a volume Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, which wins the three major American prizes that year. And Harold Bloom, who was a strong influence on people like me, who started reading Ashbury not that long after Self-Portrait. I read The Anxiety of Influence, in which Bloom presents Ashbury as the next step in the American tradition. And I was, was kind of won over and I started reading Ashbury and thinking, yeah, this, this is really doing it for me. Do you think that um, Ashbury's use of that kind of Whitmanian voice in The Skaters is also um, paying homage to O'Hara in the way that O'Hara was reinventing a kind of Whitmanian manner? I mean, is there a kind of um, a kind of a memorial thing going on? Uh, not in that poem, because that was written before O'Hara had died. But I think In Memory of My Feelings was O'Hara's version of the Whitmanian Song of Myself. Mm. And the, the New York poets all had this concept, which is quite an interesting one, of the long poem being the pole star of poetry, as Keats put it, that they all wanted to write long poems. And uh, Ashby wrote some extremely long poems, flowchart is like 220 pages or so of long lines. But he began experimenting with the long, the long poem 
in the tennis court oath, but it reaches its apogee for me in the title poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, which is based upon this Parmigianino self-portrait, which was is on a, on a sort of hemispherical bit of wood. I've been to see it a couple of times. Have you been? Have you seen it? Vienna, isn't yes. it? Yes. I have seen it, but a long time ago. Yes. I have a fridge magnet of it now, so I, <laughs> I look at it every day. That's a very Ashbury thing to have of it, I think. <laughs> how can we, how can we um, give a sense of this, of this poem? Um, I have tried to teach this poem, and I haven't tried recently because I found it too much of a challenge. It, and the challenge is hard to convey, isn't it? Because on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level, the poem is completely lucid. I mean, there's nothing obscure about the syntax or the grammar or the vocabulary. But, but the overall sense of the poem, as it were, is, is, is very cryptic and enigmatic, isn't it? It's true. Like all his stuff, in some ways it's art, but it's also about what art can't include. So it, it relishes the extent to which, underneath the seeming lucidity and he has said this in interviews, it's just as chaotic and jumbled as any of his other long poems, but it masks that chaos and jumbledness. Um, and there is, for me, a, a quite prophetic aspect to the jumbledness, and it has meant a lot to me over my life, that he's saying this is the world you have to live in, that in that sense he is in the tradition of the Emersonian prophet who is describing the life, the, the conditions with which we have to make sense of, and it shows how we try to make sense of them and how far we can go in making sense of those conditions, but that it will be wrong to think that you could make sense of them. That leads to, I don't know, Poundian fascism, if you think you can interpret experience and make sense of it. Uh, so that there's a kind of anti-ideology going on in Ashbury's poetry, and he was criticised in the 60s and 70s for being anti-political. Someone called him the Doris Day of American poetry. He liked that, didn't he? <laughs> he, he didn't like that much, actually. But um, uh, So that there's an anti-political side of him which sees politics, or it's not anti-political if you widen the scope of what politics is, that it says that any political promise to make sense of life is an illusion. And any artistic convention that promises to make sense of life is also an illusion. But we have to live in these illusions. But at the end, they break down. So at the, the, the ending of the poem, which I find terrifically moving, is when he sort of expels Parmigianino from his life and saying that this is, this is all coming to an end and somehow it can't last. Uh, and it's a hymn to art, but it's also a hymn to the world beyond art. And I think it's on that, that doubleness, which is what Ashbury delivers in a way which I think few other poets do. He says, um, uh, Therefore I beseech you, withdraw that hand, offer it no longer as shield or greeting, the shield of a greeting, Francesco. There is room for one bullet in the chamber our looking through the wrong end of the telescope as you fall back at a speed faster than that of light to flatten ultimately among the features of the room, an invitation never mailed, the it-was-all-a-dream syndrome that the all tells tersely enough how it wasn't. Its existence was real, though troubled, and the ache of this waking dream can never drown out the diagram still sketched on the wind, chosen, meant for me, and materialised in the disguising radiance of my room. We have seen the city. It is the gibbous, mirrored eye of an insect. All things happen on its balcony and are resumed within, but the action is the cold, syrupy flow of a pageant. One feels too confined, sifting the April sunlight for clues in the mere stillness of the ease of its parameter. The hand holds no chalk, and each part of the whole falls off and cannot know it new, except 
here and there, in cold pockets of remembrance, whispers out of time. Yes, it's beautifully orchestrated, isn't it, the conclusion? And um, you see, I suppose, how much he's learnt from a, an early American philosophical voice, preeminently Wallace Stevens, I suppose. Do you see that genealogy? Absolutely. Stevens was linked uh, with Ashbury by Bloom, and St- uh, Ashbury did like Stevens. So the two major, major figures for him when he was growing up were Alden and, and then Stevens. Also Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop. Um, but Stephen, from Stevens, he learned this kind of philosophical mode and a kind of pseudo-academic discourse, which you get in self-portrait in a convex mirror, which you get in, say, Stevens's academic discourse poems, uh, which there are quite a lot of those. But this is also quite high romantic, isn't it? That the end, this idea of the whispers out of time is like Wordsworthian spots of time, these privileged moments, which then have to be rejected for one to move on to live life um, so uh, there's this tremendous commitment to art, but also a scepticism about what art can deliver. Yes, and a wonderful sense of the rapt, isn't there, as well? And also what John Bailey says in his really good piece about Ashbury and the LRB, that there's also something that, in Bailey's words, something that can only be called charm, which has increased with each volume he has produced. And charm is a sort of slightly mixed praise, isn't it? But I think he means it wholeheartedly. And it, it, is, it implies, I suppose, a certain kind of quality of voice or a certain kind of intimacy he strikes with the reader. Uh, the reader doesn't exactly know where he or she or they are, but um, nevertheless wants to stay in the company of this poet. Yes, he doesn't have the exuberant charisma of O'Hara. He doesn't go for that kind of, look at me, here I am, this is all fun, isn't it? Let's all enjoy this. Uh, there's something much more um, sophisticated, reticent. Remember the idea reticence, of the, yes. the reticence uh, from some trees and here again the shield of a greeting. The idea that all our interchanges are somehow veiled with uncertainties and anxieties and the poem does create a sort of space for those anxieties to map themselves. Uh, and he, done, he did in the 70s get this kind of fan base, people writing to him and saying, John, your poems mean all this to me uh, because we project onto them our own insecurities or uncertainties and we believe that he becomes the repository of some kind of wisdom or truth or prophetic understanding or ability to cope with life. And yes, that sophisticated cosmopolitan charm, which I mean, I, I got to know him really quite well and stayed with him in Hudson and in his place in on West 22nd Street in Chelsea. And he was always surrounded by, you know, the table was groaning with the latest magazines of this or that. Um, and invitations to this or that, or vernissages and so on. So, And he uh, was a connoisseur in, in many ways of films, uh, of music. And he was a great collector of stuff as well. His house in Hudson was this kind of repository of the quirkiest, as well as the most kind of beautiful kind of paintings, um, but also kind of objet, American objet, um, which um, in some ways were kind of, some of them were quite goofy. So his embrace of of American culture, you know, and all the possibilities from the low to the high, what is, I think, in some ways, um, imaged in his poems, openness to language of a similar kind of uh, demotic um, extreme. He didn't, he, he once quoted in an interview the Mallarmé Eliot quote about purifying the dialect of the tribe and said, I want to do the opposite. (laughs) Uh, I want to help the dialect of the tribe be unpure, impure. Yes, that sounds much more like Auden, doesn't it? I think that connection's a very good one. One last thing from that Bailey essay before we move on to the 
for the last phase, I guess, of, of Ashbury's career. Uh, and I think it helps explain that very interesting comparison with O'Hara that you just made, that there's a lot of joy in Ashbury, uh, but there's not that absolutely uh, um, unmitigated jubilation and exuberance that you can get very, very often in O'Hara. And I think that maybe connects with what um, Bailey says about the premise, what, what he identifies as the premise of Ashbury's verse, which is, this is Bailey's words, that we can never see the object or the poem as it really is, never quite know what we see or see what we know. Such art is born from a uniquely American mixture of influences. And I think that sense of the negative, the sense of, of the incapacity, adds that very enriching kind of almost metaphysical melancholy that you sometimes get in these middle period Ashbury poems. I think the melancholy is a really good phrase for it. And I think that I, it was um, O'Hara said, I, I can't see why Kenneth Coke enjoys Ashbury's poetry because he thinks everything should be funny. And John's poetry is about as funny as a wrecked train. <laughs> so that sense of disaster, impending disaster, which is an Auden-esque looming menace, does permeate his poetry, the sense. And also that we never even find out what the disaster is in Ashbury that's always threatening and looming on the horizon. But to go back to his his own history uh, and the Kleinsthaler piece on Karen Rothman's book on his early years has a lot of interesting details on that. It was the death of his brother Richard from leukaemia which was so terrible for him and it ruined, in some ways, the Ashbury family. His father was a kind of... Uh, you could say a good old guy. He he wasn't particularly sophisticated or intelligent at all. While his mother, who was a school teacher, had a her father was a professor at the University uh, of of Rochester, and um, it's from his grand his maternal grandfather that John lived in his early, he lived there with, in his early years, and he spent he imbibed from him a love of culture. But when Richard, who was a kind of sporty guy, and would have been like Chester, died of leukemia. It was a dis- disaster in many ways for the family. And th- there's a really touching poem called The History of My Life, which is very short, but which kind of captures the sense in which the death of Richard um, permeated his life and which connects with your point about the melancholy. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. Then there was only one, myself. I grew up fast before learning to drive, even. There was I, a stinking adult. I thought of developing interests someone might take an interest in. No soap. I became very weepy for what had seemed like the pleasant early years. As I aged increasingly, I also grew more charitable with regard to my thoughts and ideas, thinking them at least as good as the next man's. Then a great devouring cloud came and loitered on the horizon, drinking it up for what seemed like months or years. It's actually a rather confessional poem if you if you connect it to Richard's death, such yeah. such a poem. It, and it, there's a kind of irony to it, but it's also quite plangent. Yes, I absolutely. Find. And and in some ways, um, it looks back to the more traditional ver- that particular poem looks back to the more traditional structures with which his career began. I suppose. Yes, and I think in the reference to growing up fast, he's talking about quite early. Uh, homosexual experiences he had before he could drive. He was only sort of 15. Okay, so um, we now move, I suppose, to what we could think of as the late phase of Ashbury. I mean, do you think there is such a thing? Is there something that characterises late Ashbury in the way that you can categorise late Auden or late Yates? Uh, Undoubtedly. I mean, as someone who has edited um, 
uh, Ashbury up from from his earliest work up to 2000 for the Library of America and then for the Carcanet published both those volumes of his collected poems. Uh, and he was astonishingly prolific in his later years. And um, he started sending poems to the LRB as well. Yes, indeed. Something like 30 or 40 poems appear in the LRB in the last 20 years or so of his life. Uh, so he had... Um, developed a way of writing. It didn't take him that long. <laughs> he would wheel, just start typing away. And, and there, there's a, actually a rather sweet poem by uh, Donald Hall about working on The Advocate with Ashbury, and there's a gap to be filled. It's an LRB poem, a gap to be filled. John goes away and writes a poem, comes back and it fills the gap. And he says, did you write, Hall says, did you write that poem just in those 20 minutes? Ashbury says, yes, it took me longer back then. <laughs> <laughs> now, it should be said that these poems, in an interview, that a long interview you did with Ashbury, um, which was published, you suggest to him that, that the, these later poems um, have, are funnier, that that melancholy that I po- pointed out earlier on seems to have been moderated or mitigated in some way by by whatever life influences, I don't know. But uh, it's true that there, there's, a, there's a great kind of good humour about these, m- many, not all, but uh, uh, many of these later poems. Absolutely. I think the influence of James Tate in particular can be felt uh, in those poems. And, um, I, I mean, he, that he was al- he's always a funny, a funny guy, but he, he was more prepared to make his poems um, almost like stand-up uh, occasions sometimes. And the readings... Uh, could be extremely raucous occasions or, or get a lot of laughs. I read with him once at the 92nd Street Y, and yeah, it was, you know, he, got, he gets a lot of laughs, which I don't recall getting myself. Anyway, uh, but he was also really open to other kinds of poetry. And I, again, I, so I don't want to sort of boast, but I sent him my first book, Landlocked, and he write, writes back to me saying he was goofy about it, he loved it, he starts writing poems, influenced by it, and he takes on some of my kinds of jokes that I make in that book. So one of the ways that his longevity occurred was because he remained so interested in what younger poets were doing and eager to explore their techniques and incorporate them into his own work. So again, it's the opposite of the Grand Master, who is kind of handing down how things should be done. He was very, very open to whatever else was, others were doing, and he had no interest in whether they were famous or not famous. He just went on his nerve. Uh, he, he took what he wanted and uh, it kept him imaginatively alive. Yes. I suppose it should be said that that um, a certain kind of reader who is looking for something more, I don't know what the word would be, serious, let's say, sometimes registers in the pages of the LRB. And, and most most impressively, I think, most expressively, Dennis Donoghue. I mean, a great critic, but a critic who admires Yeats and a poetry of statement and a, and a poetry of moral centrality and purpose and sagacity and so forth. And and Donoghue, reviewing a, a later volume of, of Ashbury, clearly writes in a way which is impressed, but is obviously a little bit kind of disorientated and uncomfortable. His sentences, says Donoghue, are propelled by no duty other than that of steering the mind past lucidities it would rather not meet, which is a great sentence. How would you defend Ashbury against that kind of complaint, if you would? One way of thinking of it is that he was an aesthete and an aesthete has to find escape conventions or escape the um, routine ways of understanding behaviour and therefore is always having to outwit expectations. 
uh, so that to create what you were talking about earlier is the sense of the numinous or the incomprehensible or to do justice to the incomprehensible aspects of our existence. You're always having to disrupt your reader's expectations. And he's also trying to keep himself interested or not bored. Mm. Uh, or when he is being boring, sort of, um, that's OK in a way because life is boring. <laughs> we must not say so, as uh, Berryman put it, that Ashbury, you can say that life is boring. Um, and there are boring aspects of his long poems. Uh, and he liked kind of artworks in which the boring was part of the highlight, that, that you, you'd endure the boring for a long time and then suddenly a peak would happen. Mm. And a wave, his, his terrific long poem of 1984, culminates in this wave which arises. And that is, is a sense of the relationship between our privileged moments or sen- those moments when life seems to make sense in relation to all the moments when life doesn't make much sense. And I think English poets haven't been interested in doing in, in, in working in that particular genre. Though you could say Larkin does that. He presents boredom and, and dreariness. Um, and I, I suppose for me, I'd put my cards on the table. Ashbury and Larkin were the two great poets that I read when I was in, in the 1980s and that influenced me most or had meant most to me. And they were opposites. And they sort of, they would have hated each other. I mean, Ashbury didn't like Larkin. And doesn't Larkin somewhere say he doesn't go to America because somebody say, said, you might do you like Ashbury? And he'd say, no, I prefer strawberry. Um, yes. You, uh, what you do get in Ashbury, which you certainly don't get in Larkin, are some fantastically sort of cartoonish jokes. I mean, I, I, like a wind-up denture in a joke store, fate approaches, leans quietly. Let's see. It's, it's true. I mean, no one else. And also wonderful lines of sort of studied banality, which I think are great. Like, how's, when lunch arrived, you filled up on tea and goat's cheese. <laughs> so that's the last line of a poem. It's just fantastic. He also kept going, which Larkin didn't. I mean, mm. Larkin did sort of paint himself into a corner. And he, John was very clear about the ways that he wasn't going to do that, yeah. that he would always um, try and keep going. However, low pressure... I think I wrote a piece in the LRB saying April Galleons was low pressure in comparison with with, with Houseboat Days and Self-Portrait, which are, I guess, my two favourite, two of my favourite volumes anyway. Uh, but yes, he did keep going and the LRB, in its accommodating way, started publishing his work. And it did introduce to readers who were not familiar with him. And I think I think some people just don't like it. It, do, it doesn't sort of ring their bell at all. Shall we end with um, one of the poems or, or a section from one of the poems that first appeared in the paper? Yes, I'll read the last stanza of Hierarchy of the Unexpected, which is sort of typical of, of this late period. Then there's the obscure holiday we hadn't counted on. I was already dressed for work, trying to fasten my celluloid collar to my unforgiving, slightly tattered shirt. And lo, a letter in pink ink is deposited by a wavelet at my very door. Needs must I read it? Well, we missed the first bus, but another's soon arriving. There will probably be more empty seats, although we'll arrive just as twilight is hinting at encroaching at some point in the not-too-distant future. At least the bills are paid. Yes, scream all those aboard. I know I've left something behind. My sense of displacement, perhaps. Yet no mood will be shattered if we are diplomatic for once. The inheritors of those woods and groves won't oppress us and there'll be a chance for sleep and some grub. You'll see. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription 
go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 